Hello, and welcome to the Green Book Commentaries Podcast. I'm Dr. Arthur Plessa. Volume 14, Episode 20, Fevers, Emotional Poisoning, and Stimulating Innate. Doctors of Chiropractic and Student Initiates, welcome back and thank you for joining me. For those just joining us, we've been focusing on the subject of poisons and their effects upon the tissue cell. In today's episode, we're going to continue to develop uh, this discussion deeper and explore the often asked question, can poisons cause subluxations? We will also discuss the philosophy of fevers and how innate uses them to eliminate poisons. Then we're going to conclude with stimulations and inhibitions. So with that, let's begin with the chiropractic philosophy of fevers. When we speak of chiropractic philosophy, the subject is always innate intelligence in combination with the attached subject matter. In the philosophy of fevers, we are attempting to understand why innate is creating a fever in the first place. But wait, aren't fevers bad, making us feel ill? Do TV commercials not run every day for medications that reduce fevers? Didn't little Billy's pediatrician give him some medication to bring down his fever? So fevers, good, bad, what gives? The allopathic approach to fever, much less any other symptom, is to alleviate it. The philosophy of medicine is to return the body to a state where it's free of symptoms, believing that health has now returned. This is why TV commercials for medications are among the most funded. This is why doctors want to bring down fevers. Also, when a symptom is reduced, we feel better, giving the impression that health has returned. With the exception of a few medical doctors I've spoken with who believe that fevers are a healthy response to an unhealthy body, the majority of medicine favors fever-reducing drugs. With that, let's explore chiropractic's approach to fevers and why they are necessary. When toxins and waste materials cannot be eliminated, the serous circulation accumulates poison. Innate wants to eliminate the poison, but is unable to do so completely using only the kidneys and skin. Innate then begins the process of oxidizing the poison. This converts poisons into a gas state of carbon dioxide and releases them from the body through the lungs using respiration. So where's the fever? The process of oxidization causes an increase in body heat. So while we feel hot, sweaty, and tired, the fever is innate's mechanism for eliminating poison and restoring health. The role of the chiropractor is to find the subluxation, adjust it, and continue to recheck, making sure it does not return. In this, the patient can make a full recovery, often in a few short days, sometimes the same day of the adjustment. 
I actually saw a patient the other week with a fever, which had been going on for a few days. I had checked his temperature with a thermometer and it being recorded at 101.3 degrees Fahrenheit. I then checked his spinal temperature with chiropractic instrumentation, confirming the presence and location of a subluxation. I proceeded to adjust the subluxation, rested the patient afterwards, and then rechecked, confirming nerve pressure had completely checked out. I rechecked the oral temperature, and now it was recorded at 99.1 degree Fahrenheit. One adjustment, 20 minutes later, and the patient was feeling much better and looked more energetic. The principle works. All is fair in love and war. In other words, when you get involved in either of the two, you can expect to experience the greatest suffering known to mankind. In the game of love, what hurts more than a broken heart? In the theater of war, what hurts more than losing your life? In both, strong emotions can overcome your body, causing fits from uncontrollable crying to the nervous shakes of post-traumatic stress disorder. From these, we know that emotions influence the body. But how? B.J. Palmer's theory stated that strong emotions cause shock, affecting tissues around vertebrae and producing a subluxation. But how can thoughts move matter? Innate uses the mental realm to create mental impulses, to put into motion the tissue cells of the body. So with that, why can't a negative thought, such as a strong emotion, do the same, but instead of being productive, causes a subluxation instead? No, innate does not subluxate the spine, as that would be a direct violation of principle 25, which states that innate is never injurious or destructive to the body. <clears throat> Think of a strong emotion that upsets you, much like you think about falling from a ladder. Both have the same effect in the, in the ability to produce a subluxation. This has a practical application to patients with chronic depression, as they may have trouble holding their adjustments initially. The early stage of their care is much like a roller coaster ride. However, with dedication to getting well, their mindset slowly begins to change and they begin to stay in adjustment and eventually they get well. The principle works again. Stimulation and inhibition. If you're a chiropractic student right now, you're probably accustomed to this terminology and are well acquainted with how one gland secretes a hormone in order to stimulate another part of the body into action. As we move into the study of chiropractic techniques, I've often heard one technique can stimulate an inhibited organ or gland and how another technique can inhibit a stimulated body part. While this may appear so on the surface, nothing could be further from the truth. Before we develop this concept, let's discuss the two types of stimulation and see what's really going on here. True stimulation is the action of stimuli upon dead tissue. 
Remember back in middle school where you likely first saw a severed frog leg kick about as an electrical current passed through it? True stimulation moves dead tissue into action, resembling live movements. However, these actions are not governed by innate, as innate has left the building. And as a result, the electric stimulation becomes a penetrative force unadapted to tissue cells. What exactly does this mean? Innate adapts forces to prevent injury and maintain tissue cell health. In a living tissue cell of a frog leg, innate will never cause muscle tissue to contract to the point of tearing the tendon from its connective bone. However, in the dead frog leg, it is possible to pass so much current through it that would cause such severe muscular contraction that the tendon can actually rip from the bone. Now, let's discuss false stimulation. You wake up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom and end up stepping on one of your kid's Lego blocks. As you mumble a few choice words under your breath, your foot instantly retracts away from the painful piece of plastic jabbing into your heel. So what's the difference then between the movements of a stimulated dead frog leg and a living leg in our examples? Both are in motion, right? Both have been stimulated, haven't they? Whereas stimulated dead tissue moves due to current passing through it, living tissue moves to defend itself when stimulated with something that can injure it. So it's not the stimulation moving living tissue then, but innate governing all movements and actions in a coordinated manner. When we return, we'll continue our reading from volume 14. Welcome back. We now begin our reading from volume 14, page 143. Article 192, Periodical and Recurrent Diseases. Periodical and recurrent diseases are those which alternate with periods of apparent recovery, and in some cases, the periods are regular. There are several kinds, but most of them be belong in the poison family. The toxins or poisons accumulate over and above the amount of elimination, which of course, in these cases, is abnormal. When this accumulation reaches a point where it is dangerous, innate brings about a crisis of some kind, as fits in epilepsy, high fevers, as in dengue or ague. The analogy of the geyser can be used here. A geyser tube slowly fills with water until its hydrostatic pressure is overbalanced by the superheated steam from volcanic fires. Then it bursts forth with violence and is relieved. There are other types, as hay fever, which is seasonal and comes on at certain seasons because there is a chronic subluxation, which does not offer inconvenience and does not interfere with transmission until the season comes when more adaptation is required. Coryza, or head cold, is another example. One has a chronic subluxation, impinging the nerves leading to the tissues of the nasal pharynx. 
Through the summer weather, while it is warm, there is no interference. But when in the fall or winter, the colder weather calls for more adaptation in those tissues. There is interference with transmission, hence in coordination. Article 193. The Philosophy of Fevers. This explanation pertains to febrile conditions. Through lack of proper elimination of toxins and waste materials, poisons accumulate in the serous circulation. The ordinary channels of elimination are not available to innate. Accumulation of poisons always chills the body. Innate plans to eliminate the poisons through the lungs in the form of carbon dioxide. She starts to oxidize them. Calorific function, unfortunately, is abnormal. Therefore, the process of oxidation, burning, gets beyond control. Too much heat is developed, which is made worse by the ordinary channels of elimination not being available, kidneys and skin. <clears throat> the temperature goes above 98.6 degrees, and the condition is called fever or febrile dis-ease. Because of lack of proper elimination through the ordinary channels for that purpose, namely the kidneys, skin, and bowels. Toxins and waste materials accumulate in the serous circulation and poison the tissue cells of the body. Such poisons produce coldness, and as their amount grows serious, they produce what is known as chill. Then innate plans, through intellectual adaptation, to eliminate these poisons via the lungs in the form of carbon dioxide. For the poisons are composed mostly of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, which can be made into gases. However, before the lungs can handle these toxins, they must be changed to the gaseous state. Therefore, innate starts to oxidize the carbons, a chemical process that produces very much heat, for it actually burns. All goes well, and not too much heat is produced by this adaptation, and there is no evidence of febrile trouble if the calorific departments are normal. Unfortunately, in the febrile diseases, they are not. The process of oxidization, so nicely started by innate, gets beyond control. The C-plus is evidence of that. <clears throat> Not only is the process of oxidation out of control and the temperature of the body raised above normal from that source, but the temperature goes still higher because of the usual exc excretory channels being out of control. Ordinary heat dis dissipation cannot take place, not to mention the dissipation of the extra heat, which should be done. Thus, the lungs are the organs that innate is depending upon, and their action is much accelerated adaptively, as well as that of the heart. The lungs carry off the oxidized material as well as great quantities of heat. In time, if the amount of poison is not too great and the subluxations not too severe, the poisons will be oxidized and carried away and the febrile conditions subside. It is commonly said that the fever wore itself out. Its, ca its cause still remains, and it is apt to recur. 
If, however, adjustments are given, the proper use of the eliminating organs restored, the poisons quickly will be eliminated, so there is no use of further burning toxins. There also is no further unusual demand upon the calorific department, and therefore, there ceases to be interference with transmission, especially if center place be adjusted with the kidney place. Such adjustments are followed by profuse sweat and the almost immediate breaking of the fever, whereas without the adjustments, allowing that condition does not become fatal. It may last for days before it subsides, with consequent damage to the delicate tissue cells, which are not able to stand much heat. <clears throat> Article 194. BJ's Fever Cycle. This complete fever cycle is condensed to three steps, which have each three different aspects or names and are here given side by side. 1. Invasion, Chill, E minus, Concussion of Forces, Kidney Place. 2. Incubation, Fever, C plus, Subluxation, Center Place. 3. Recuperation, Sweat, O, Adjustments, Center place and kidney place. Article 195. The poisons of strong emotions. These have references to the poisoning of the serous circulation by strong emotions, as worry, fright, anger, hate, nervousness, shock, etc. There are several theories. We present three. One. Strong emotions produce a shock with the effect of penetrative forces that act upon the tissues in the vertimere region. This, of course, may produce diseases directly by local or indirectly through the serous circulation. <clears throat> Two, strong emotions have an effect upon secretions of the body, which enter the serous circulation and are poisonous to the tissues. Those who favor this theory point out instances of nursing babies being poisoned by the mother's milk after the mother having undergone anger, fright, or worry. 3. Strong emotions can strong emotions cause excessive carbon dioxide and other waste matters in the brain which enter the serous circulation. Brain tissue requires an enormous blood supply at any time. Note the comparative size of the blood vessels supplying it. Sudden or violent use of the brain produces a hard strain upon it, which if, conti which if continued will injure it. Naturally, its already large blood supply will have to be increased. Study, worry, or long protracted heavy work of the brain not only requires a great blood supply, but produces a heavy amount of waste matter, which entering the serous circulation acts in a very noxious manner. Article 196. The Poisons of Fatigue. Any exercise produces waste materials, 
which if not eliminated, but retained in the serous circulation, act as poison. Either brain exhaustion or physical exhaustion poison the whole body in a way that it requires time to restore. Everyone knows how hard it is to think clearly when physically exhausted, or to work physically when very much mentally exhausted. We are also acquainted with the cramping effects of, of toxins in the muscles after we have had a very exhausting tramp as a difficult march or a long hunt. Article 197. Stimulation. There are two kinds of stimulation, the direct and indirect, or the true and the false. The tr direct or true stimulation is the action of stimuli upon dead tissue, driving it to an unadapted, unadapted activity resembling function. The indirect or false stimulation is really not stimulation at all. It is the adaptive response of live tissue to invading stimuli. <clears throat> the direct or true stimulation is shown when stimuli are used in prepared muscle, as dead frog legs. It causes dead tissue to act in a manner resembling function. But this movement is wholly unadapted. One could produce no definite governed action with it. The indirect or false stimulation calls for unusual adaptive action of tissue cells, which because of the fact such action resulting from applied stimuli is apt to mislead one to thinking that the stimuli caused the action. This unusual or even violent adaptive action is in defense of the tissues against the stimuli, which are penetrative forces. Such action overworks a tissue cell, leaving it exhausted, depleted, and poisoned. The cell must recuperate at the expense of survival value. <clears throat> Innate intelligence neither stimulates nor inhibits, and for the reason that the student is apt to make the error of believing so, Dr. Palmer objects to the use of these words in chiropractic. Innate does not create stimuli. Mental impulses are not stimuli, for stimuli have none of the characteristics of adapted forces. Neither does stimulation take place in the body, only in dead tissue. What really takes place when a stimuli are applied to the living body is usual adaptive action. One might reason that if a stimulus will act upon a dead muscle cell, it will act upon the same muscle cell in the living body. The answer to that is, if a stimulus acts upon a cell in a living body, causing it to act in an unadapted manner, it is because interference with transmission leaves the cell partly dead. This is a part of the explanation of excess function. Article 198, Inhibition. Inhibition is the name for the suppression of the action of a tissue cell by penetrative forces, as of a drug, at the same time loading it with more work to do. As there is no real stimulation in live cells, 
so there is no real inhibition in live cells. <clears throat> a drug which inhibits is a poison, and as such causes the tissue cells to make violent efforts to eject it, followed by extreme exhaustion. There is no difference in the action of any poison, stimulating or inhibiting, upon a tissue cell, except that a poison which inhibits is more deadly and damages the cell more. Article 201. How Poisons Kill. Poisons impair the condition of tissue cells so that it limits innate expression. This action may be so great that death will occur. If poisons injure innate brain, death is immediate. Poisons produce a shock as any other penetrative force, causing subluxations, which may be severe enough to cause death. Poisons do not bite innate. <clears throat> Violent poisons, such as cyanide of potassium, produce extreme stimulation, which produces violent contractions. This affects the vertimere regions, causing subluxations and injury to vital organs. Some believe that it injures innate brain by acting upon all nervous tissues. Some believe that the violent stimulation injures or destroys the metabolic nervous system. Thank you for joining me for another episode. I'm Dr. Arthur Plessa. This has been the Green Book Commentaries podcast.